And now, Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. I want to just now do a public service announcement, and I need all the leaders here to help me, okay? To check if you qualify for the ACP, look at your neighbor. <laughs> to check if you qualify, go to getinternet.gov. To check if you qualify, go to internet.gov. This has been Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. Stu does America. Talking SCOTUS today, so why not get a 624-22 mug? Yes, celebrating the wonderful decision last year from the Supreme Court on Roe versus Wade. You can go to stewdoesmerch.com to pick that up. Use the promo code STU10 and you'll save 10%. If you're watching on YouTube, like the video right this second. Subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. Please do all the things. Dominic Pino joins us from National Review with the latest on the Ohio train derailment and the claims that Trump was responsible. We'll see if that's true. There's a new Biden challenger on the Democrat side, and I will check my crystals for you and tell you who it is. I'm feeling the vibes right now. It's coming to me. Well, we should know in a few minutes. But we start by doing SCOTUS versus Biden. Yes, the Supreme Court is back in session. And you know what? One of the things I like about the Supreme Court, as opposed to a lot of the other things we are sometimes forced to talk about here, is like it's actually sort of like a policy issue. You know, every once in a while we get to talk about things that are supposed to be what the government does, not just like random, uh, you know, controversies here or there or dumb things celebrities say or whatever. This is an actual fundamental thing that the government does. And we are looking at whether they have enough power to do it. And in this case, no, they do not. Biden's student loan forgiveness program comes before the Supreme Court. That's today. President Biden even took the time to tweet about it which is more time than he actually took to think through the policy. Today, my administration argues for our student debt relief in the Supreme Court. This relief is critical to over 40 million Americans as they recover from the economic crisis caused by the pandemic. We're confident it's legal and we're fighting for it in court. He's not confident it's, it's, uh, it's legal. He knows it's illegal. In fact, he knows it's illegal. I mean, you know, go to no lesser authority on the left, at least, as one Nancy Pelosi. People think that the president of the United States, is this more on the subject than you ever want to know? Will you let me know? People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. Hmm. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would has to be an act of Congress. Now, of course, she's completely reversed herself on that. As if we didn't know that clip even happened. That was all the way back. Do you remember how old you were in July 2021? <laughs> Seems like old. They only had black and white footage back then. That's what I remember about that time. Now, look, there is absolutely, and I, I want to make this clear, absolutely no doubt that this program is illegal. It has no basis. It is blatantly obvious. Nancy Pelosi said it was illegal. Joe Biden's own secretary of education said it was illegal and could not happen. 
They just decided to do it anyway, largely to try to win in 2022 when it came to the election. It was an election ploy. They knew it wasn't going to last. They knew they would lose in the Supreme Court. They just tried to go around the law and around our system of government to try to make this thing stick in a backdoor sort of way. Now, the only thing that is even worth discussing at all when it relates to this program in the Supreme Court is whether you can find somebody who has standing to bring the suit. That is it. And, you know, without getting into all the details, basically, you can't sue uh, in this situation if you haven't been actually uh, affected by it. If you haven't been injured in some way, economically or otherwise, you can't bring the suit. You're not involved. Like, I I can't say, you know, I don't think uh, I don't think that policy was fair to a woman in Alaska and therefore I'm suing on her behalf. Well, I wasn't involved. So I need to have it hurt me individually to bring the actual suit. That's the only thing that's even borderline worth talking about here. In fact, that was admitted throughout the hearings today that if, if they, had, they listed some other people who could have brought the, uh, the lawsuit and they, then it would have definitely had standing. This came from states, states that control agencies that even the Biden side of this argument agreed would be legitimate. It's just it's one of these little technicalities that the Biden uh, campus, you know, hanging their hat on. But it, it, it is just a it's a speed bump here. Right. Eventually, someone is going to bring a suit that does clear the standing bar. It's just a matter of whether this is the right case or not. So put that aside for a second. The question is, were these states that are bringing the suit actually injured by this program? They argue yes. And they went back and forth. Even people like Amy Coney Barrett today were asking questions about the GOP representatives and saying, I don't know, did you really uh, suffer at all from this? I mean, it's federal debt. It's just being relieved. What do the states have to do with this? They went back and forth. The state said, well, we have um, you know, a loan agency here in Missouri that gets the, gives these loans out, collects interest, and then makes um, donations and, and payments into important programs here in Missouri. And now they're not going to do that because they're all getting the debt paid before the interest is paid off as well. Um, now, of course, the Supreme Court uh, was very skeptical of the left side of the argument here. Supreme Court appears skeptical of Biden's student uh, debt relief plan. Uh, conser- U.S. Supreme Court conservatives questioned Biden's student debt relief. I mean, the, the overwhelming coverage from the media even was, we know we have nothing here. We really want this to go through. We're all liberals. We all vote for Democrats. We all donate to Democrats. We would love for the uh, Supreme Court to rule in our favor here and let Biden just kind of give out trillions of dollars whenever he wants. I mean, that would be fantastic. What a paradise for the left. I mean, if you could just give out a trillion dollars whenever you felt like it, that would be great for them. Unfortunately for them, that's also not how our system of government works. If you want to spend a trillion dollars, you need to go to Congress and get them to start doing it. And even then... A lot of the things they spend um, their money on, to me, is way outside the bounds of what's supposed to be going on, according to the Constitution. Uh, student protesters, of course, they want their money. So they're outside. They, were, they stayed up all night, 500 students at the Supreme Court, trying to help Biden because uh, they wanted to get the economic mobility of over 40 million Americans is, de- is dependent on the survival of this program. Another thing they could have done is, I don't know, work. Like maybe if they went and got a job instead of standing outside a building for hours and hours, they could just pay their loans off themselves. It's a thought. Seems to be a tad more productive. Now, one of the fun things about the Supreme Court these days is, yes, us nerds, us conservative nerds get to sit here and actually hear the arguments for the first time. We don't get to see them. No TV coverage here. 
but we do get to hear the arguments. And we've got some of that today. Uh, and, you know, one of the people who's kind of you know, always the swing vote is, is, is uh, John Roberts. Now, Roberts has not been good. OK, let's be honest about it. He's been kind of a terrible Supreme Court justice. But in some of these things, especially when it comes to government regulation like this, at times he's on the right side of this stuff. Um, he uh, was questioning uh, the Biden representatives. And, uh, you know, this it was kind of the way the whole day went. We take very seriously the idea of uh, separation of powers and that power should be divided. Uh, to prevent its uh, uh, abuse. Mm -hmm. And there are many procedural niceties uh, that have to be followed for the same purpose. Um, The case reminds me of the one we had a few years ago under a different administration where the administration tried acting on its own to cancel the DREAMers program. Uh, Uh And we blocked that effort. Mm. And I just wonder, given the posture of the case and given our historic concern about uh, separation of powers, you would recognize at least that this is a case that presents extraordinarily serious, important yeah. issues yeah. Mm-hmm. about the role of Congress and about the role that we should exercise in scrutinizing that. S- significant enough that the major questions doctrine ought to be considered implicated. Hmm. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, let me try to respond to the concerns about both the role for the judiciary and the role for Congress here. Uh, we are not suggesting that there's no role for the judiciary to play. It's that these plaintiffs are not proper plaintiffs in this case. Right. This is the standing argument. They're not even making, they're barely even trying to say that this is a legal program. They're just saying they can't say it's illegal. They can't be the ones that stop it. We need other people to come here and tell us it's illegal because obviously sure it's illegal but we're just saying they can't be the ones to tell us that they can't be the ones to bring the suit that dissolves this program Uh, the major questions clause is a big part of this as well they'll kind of let the government do a bunch of crap they're not allowed to if it's just small potatoes they're fine with that you know ah you guys what is it a couple it's going to cost a few million dollars here or there we 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 sneeze and we drop that amount of money here in washington dc the question is if it's a major if it falls under the major questions uh, doctrine, you are going to have a, a situation that is massively impactful to the economy or uh, many other things, honestly. Um, the economy here is really the big deal, though, because you're just giving away a trillion dollars or half a, a trillion dollars uh, to people who, many of which, you know, are fine and can continue to pay their, their loans. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at any level. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, of course, he was there as well. And he was, uh, he was, I would say, just as skeptical of the arguments coming from the Biden administration. Congress has given uh, the executive branch a lot of emergency authority. Um, and I, I think your argument rests on that. But it also requires generally uh, the president to specify the provisions of law under which he proposes that he or others will act. Uh, that's 50 U.S.C. 1631, I think. My notes are right. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, did that happen here? Yes, it did. So the COVID-19 emergency, um, the specific provisions that he invoked were part of the Social Security Act and HHS's authority to target the spread of disease. Um, I can't give you the exact citation here, but that determination was made. Yeah, I'm here to argue in front of the Supreme Court. I can't give you the exact details, though. I mean, that's a lot to ask. I, believe me, they did it, sure, but I'm, I, I don't have it here to, to, tell, to tell you about what they may have done. But believe you me, they did it.
This is how the day went for the Biden administration. Here's uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who I don't know if you know this, drank beer once. Here's uh, what he said when he was uh, questioning. In something like this, there are going to be winners and losers. uh, And um, that raises similar concerns about individual rights, individual liberty um, that are present, arguably, in regulatory programs uh, as well. And uh, why, therefore, wouldn't the same line of precedence that we've applied in the regulatory context apply also in the benefits context to consider whether we need specific express congressional authorization? Exciting stuff, obviously. Well, I think that at the very least, to the extent that there are those considerations that you referenced, they're not direct in the same way that expansive regulatory authority is. You know, when you've got a government uh, program that is, as, as the court has said before, constitutes extravagant regulatory authority that takes an identifiable group of individuals or entities and directly imposes burdens or costs on them. And I think that there is a distinction with the benefit context when it comes to how Congress is likely to legislate and its general comfort level with broadly empowering the executive to provide benefits to Americans, especially in the context of an emergency situation. Riveting stuff. I mean, it's basically an episode of Law and Order. Super exciting. I mean, remember, Brett Kavanaugh is supposed to be the worst guy in the world. Um, and I mean, his story, that question about regulatory programs and express congressional authorization, really important, but also kind of dull. This is why a lot of people don't pay attention to this stuff. It goes over their heads. They're not used to sitting here and listening to back and forth between Supreme Court justices. And I get that. I understand that it's not the most exciting stuff, but it is really, really important. If you have a government that can just go spend half a trillion dollars without even asking Congress, what government system do we have? Do we even have a constitution anymore? Do we have any rules at all? You heard previously them talking about, you know, the the, the Trump administration asking for uh, the Dreamers thing to go away, and they refused that. Now, look, There's a lot. The details are obviously much, much different, but they're trying to put them in the position of saying, so you agree with the Trump administration's ideas on executive power? That's that's what you're telling me. Surely people like uh, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor will uh, jump on that bandwagon right away. Uh, John Roberts also talking about um, an interesting part of this argument, because and I mentioned it earlier a a little bit. The idea of having student debt relief makes people think of someone who's having a really tough time, right? Someone who can't pay their bills, someone who's struggling. We pro- you probably know someone in this position. I know I know people in this position. They're struggling to pay back their, their, uh, their bills, their, their college loan payments. It's not easy. Obviously, you have the COVID thing that, that, is, that is now passed, but uh, you know, still, still affecting some people. You think of those people, but that's not everybody. That's the pro- one of the many problems with this. It doesn't even make sense if it were legal. Here's John Roberts. Didn't half the borrowers say they would not have any trouble paying their loans without regard to the forgiveness program? So it varies based on income bracket. Does yes, it? It's true that that in certain income brackets, the data, I think, reflected that, you know, 51 percent of borrowers expected that they would be unable to pay their student loans. This is just such a great moment of lawyering. This is like Charlie Day and and Bird Law here. This is like we are at that level at the Supreme Court. He says, don't half of 
<laughs> How does that? Hey, uh, so I'm looking here. Half of the people that you're giving relief to all say they can just pay their bills. Why are we giving them relief? Uh, well, actually, that depends on income bracket. And it's 51% said they couldn't pay their bills. Oh, oh, that's totally different. See, I thought my belief was people who had no money could pay and the rich people couldn't. And uh, on the other side of that, I thought it was only, you know, it was 50%. And you're telling me it's actually 49%, which is a really important thing to point out. Thank you for, for doing that. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh back on, uh, in the, you know, when it comes to the questioning, he's asking about this sort of pre-COVID issue. He'll outline it here and then we'll talk about it. The student loan issue is a major public policy issue without regard to COVID to begin with. Uh, obviously, and how to uh, deal with that and the burdens it's imposing on people after they get out of college who have massive student loans to pay back. Uh, obviously, a huge public policy issue that was being considered before COVID. Mm. Should that factor in to how we think about this? In other words, this is something that um, was on the table, right. being discussed, yeah. being debated, uh -huh. and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden. it's this public policy idea huh. is um, uh, attached uh, that was being proposed and pursued before the uh, pandemics attached to pandemic legislation huh. matter at all. I think that it's really hard to think about how that should work as a matter oh. of statutory interpretation and specifically what kind of burden this court would be putting on Congress if it goes down that road. Now, look, I don't you might not be arguing in front of the Supreme Court, but you should you need a little advice just in case you're ever in the position where you're arguing in front of the Supreme Court. Never start a response with. I think it's really hard to think about how that should work. Don't do that. That's a don't, go another direction. Think about make sure you, even if you don't believe it, say it's easy to think about how it should work because you're supposed to know how it should work. It's kind of your gig. I will also point out that, you know, Kavanaugh's pointing out the obvious here. Hey, guys, you wanted this the entire time. And now you're just attaching it to the COVID policy. Like, we all know that. We were all alive for when you guys were begging for this the entire time. And if you're going to reference the HEROES Act from 2003, which has absolutely nothing to do with what they're trying to do, but this was their legal justification, you could have done it in the 17 years up until COVID. You didn't do it because you knew it had nothing to do with student debt relief when it comes to this wide of a scale. And you're using COVID to try to get one over on everybody. You should be ashamed of yourself. And you should also be ashamed of yourself because you think it's really hard about, to think about how it could work. That's not a good answer. By the way, one of the true tragedies of the Supreme Court is that Clarence Thomas doesn't really like asking questions. He's not a showboat. I wish he was, because it, it would be really fun for us. Samuel Alito was probably the most pissed off as, as he was going through the day and just, I mean, just dismissive of these ridiculous arguments they were making for the Biden administration. I mean, uh, listen to this exchange. Why is it fair? If, it was just, if he didn't have to do it, why is it an answer to say that it was warranted? Maybe it was warranted, but why was it done? I guess you don't want to answer the 
question. It was fair because in the absence of this relief, it's okay. undisputed that oh. there are going to be millions of student loan borrowers who are not going to be able to pay their, their student loans, who yeah, are going I, to, into and, default and, and delinquency. And, and, they, and the HEROES Act was specifically designed for this situation. No, it wasn't. This is no, Congress telling the secretary, you don't have to let that happen. And when we have this kind of a pandemic uh, that requires this kind of relief, I think that the HEROES Act is operating right within its domain. Now, you absolutely know that she knows that that's not true. It obviously isn't true. The HEROES Act had to do with soldiers. I mean, it's a totally, it has nothing to do with what they're attempting here. It's just embarrassing that they keep going back to that. But you could tell Alito was just like, you're just not even going to answer the questions at this point, are you? You're just, I'm, I guess we're just done here. Now, you may note that I did not highlight anything that Sonia Sotomayor said because she's dumb. So when you get to the Supreme Court, here and you're trying to figure out which way this goes you have a couple of different options because look the supreme court is not there may be a question about standing here but this this supreme court in particular is not going to allow this nonsense to stand this is a completely ridiculous program in every way the question is can the biden administration get past a couple of these hurdles early on and get the money to people before people they want to drag it back out of them this is just a a, a, a hail mary so they can say go back to their voters and say we tried the stupid supreme court you got to keep us in power so we can get our supreme court justices in there and of course you know there's a roll of the dice that maybe if they get the couple of rulings to go their way they can get some of this money out of the door before this program gets stopped so why did the supreme court take this case it's only one of two reasons in my mind one it's to absolutely obliterate it and yell at the government for even attempting it because it is the most embarrassing overreach that you can even imagine. Uh, we've gone over that case a hundred million times. I won't bore you with it again. Secondarily, and this is the best case scenario, I believe, for the Biden administration, is they took this case, even though they might reject it for standing, but they will give, paint a path, paint a map to conservative justices and people around the country who want this program gone to how they can get standing. This happened multiple times during the back and forth today. You know, they pressed even the Democrats to say, to admit, yeah, you know, if X, Y, or Z had standing, uh, if they brought this case, then of course they would have standing. That's all you have to do. It's the only hurdle left to here because this is a joke from beginning to end. Uh, almost as much of a joke as Sonia Sotomayor is as a Supreme Court justice. So there we go. We'll give you the updates more and more as this uh, stuff goes on. It's going to be a few months until we actually hear the results on this one. But at least until then, the good news is Joe Biden can't just give away a trillion of your dollars without asking Congress. So we got that going for us, which is nice. We throw everything at our livers, cholesterol, alcohol, toxins, uh, Tylenol, statins, cigarettes. That's so, you know, so many of us have, uh, you know, sluggish, fatty liver. I have sluggish, fatty everything, so I'm, I'm familiar with this. But this helps us, you know, uh, you know, winds up making us gain weight. It makes us lose energy. And adults with fatty liver are three and a half times more likely to have heart failure than those without 
It's time to help your liver with Liver Health Formula. It's an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver. And it's manufactured right here in the USA, approved by American doctors. Try Liver Health Formula and receive five free gifts when you order today. You get the free bottle of blood sugar formula to reduce your sugar cravings. You also get four free e-books to support every aspect of your health. I, I, need, I need to read a lot more books about my health. So this might be you as well. Try Liver Health Formula by going to getliverhelp.com slash stew. Get your five free bonus gifts today. Get your liver help, uh, healthy. Getliverhelp.com slash stew. It's getliverhelp.com slash stew. Let's bring in Dominic Pino. He's the Thomas L. Rhodes Journalism Fellow at National Review. He's been covering the Ohio train derailment in depth, and his newest piece is The Disinformation Train Keeps on Chugging. Make sure to check that out, as well as the rest of his great reporting on this topic. Dominic, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Stu. I appreciate it. You know, you've been, I think, the one I've, I've, I've seen talking about this stuff first over and over again, and, and really diving into this. You know, this there's been this narrative from the left and, you know, there's this is typical, right? Like there's a there's a big story out there. People are complaining. They're saying, why isn't the government doing more? And the government reaches to blame their political enemies. We know this happens. But the the idea that right off the bat, they came out and said, well, this is actually the Trump administration's fault. They didn't care about safety precautions. And that's what caused all this. Can you bring us through this entire storyline here? Because it, it it's mind boggling. Sure. So back in 2015, the Obama administration pursued a regulation about electronically controlled pneumatic brakes, which are a different kind of braking system uh, than trains normally use. And uh, they were pushing this. Uh, The railroads came back and said, look, this is a really, really expensive thing for us to implement. And there's not a lot of evidence that there's going to be a big safety difference. So what they did was uh, uh, when the Trump administration came in in 2017, they had already, uh, Congress had already commissioned a National Academy of Sciences report, which looked at the safety impacts of these new kinds of brakes. And what they found is that the evidence was inconclusive. They said it doesn't make a significant difference one way or the other. Uh, then there was another report from the Government Accountability Office that showed that the data that the Obama administration DOT was using to support this uh, new regulation didn't quite add up. And so Uh, What the Trump administration did is they said, look, we've got a regulation proposed that uh, doesn't have a lot of benefits and and has high costs. We're not going to do this. It's just common sense. Now, regardless of any of that, uh, this regulation never in anybody's form, in anybody's head, would have applied to the train that crashed in Ohio. Uh, The train that crashed in Ohio only had three cars that had flammable liquids in them. This regulation only applies to trains with... uh, blocks of 20 cars with flammable liquids or 35 or more total in the train. So it was not even close. <laughs> I mean, it's really amazing. So we have a, a, a Congress that comes up and commissions this this uh, this report. The report comes back and says no real benefit. And it's going to be very, very expensive. The Trump administration does what seems to be rational here, which is say, OK, we're not going to implement it. But even if they had implemented it, w- it wouldn't have done anything in this crash. And, and when you get to that level of disconnect from reality, you have to believe that even the people making the argument that this was Trump's fault based on this information, they have to know this is false. The Buttigieg's of the world, the Chuck Schumer's of the world. This is not something that where they're fooled by this or they're getting their facts wrong. This is just them blatantly lying to try to win news cycles. 
a couple of weeks ago, they might have been able to play off ignorance, but the uh, chairwoman of the National Transportation Safety Board about two weeks ago in a Twitter thread clearly explained why this rule would have never applied to this train. And so, and she's been calling, she's been, she's been uh, out, you know, you can read reports um, uh, that quote her in Politico and ABC News. I mean, these are, you know, mainstream publications that are quoting her basically saying, please stop spreading this misinformation because this is not helping anyone. This is amazing. I mean, again, this is a Biden official here uh, laying this out. Um, Is there a... I mean, is there any evidence that even the braking system was the culprit in this crash? No. So far, what we know from the NTSB reports and from other reports that came out uh, before then that were unofficial is that the the problem here is an overheating wheel set. And so one of the it's one of the common causes of, of train derailments, um, you know, uh, wheel sets are metal rubbing on metal. There's a lot of different things going on. Uh, technically there. And so if something goes wrong, that can overheat. And when it does, it it can break and cause the train to come off the tracks. Uh, That's what happened here. The NTSB has identified the exact wheel set uh, on the car uh, that that, that caused this accident. They're investigating it. Um, They have it in their laboratory. They're testing it. And uh, and we know exactly where the accident happened uh, in relation to other different warning systems that are along the track. And so uh, what we're looking for really from the NTSB here is, uh, was the car properly inspected? Um, was the, was the, was the wheel bearing too old or was there something wrong with it? And then, and then third, is there something we can do to change the, um, the safety devices along the track to catch these problems earlier? Now, none of that has anything to do with this braking regulation from the Obama administration. And none of it has anything to do with paid sick leave for rail workers or any of the other things that Pete Buttigieg is trying to shoehorn into this issue. And that's a that's an interesting place to take this, because, you know, we talked about this with the Supreme Court uh, stuff that went on today with the student loan debt situation where, you know, the questioning from Kavanaugh was like, hey, you know, a lot of the things that you're these are things that you've been asking for for a long time and you seem to have just tied it to covid policy. The same thing seems to be happening here. These are all things that the, the, the left seem to have wanted forever, and now they're just applying it to this particular accident when it has nothing to do with why it was caused or whether these regulations existed at all in the first place. That's right. And one of the things about the braking regulation in particular is that environmentalists have supported this for a long time because uh, while it wouldn't have applied to the East Palestine train, uh, one of the most common types of trains that that regulation would apply to are trains carrying uh, crude oil or refined petroleum products. Mm. And so they see it as a way to make transporting fossil fuels more expensive. Um, if you look at the the paid leave issue, you have crew size mandates, things like that, uh, you know, mandating the the, the size, uh, saying that two, two men have to be in the cab of the car and making that a federal regulation. That's currently the standard, but obviously with in the future, with uh, automation and better technology, it might be the case that eventually uh, only one person might be needed to run a train. And so, uh, but the unions want to stop that because it, 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 uh, it's a way for them to protect union jobs. And so, these are all things that Buttigieg is talking about. There were actually three crewmen in the car of of this in the cab of of this particular locomotive, and um, 
and, and so they had one more than normal. And uh, it, so it, it's, again, completely unrelated to any of the causes of the accident. I mean, they're not even trying here, Dominic. I mean, is this just purely just politics trying to win these news cycles, trying to get, you know, they, they, they probably know they're going to lose some of these fact check battles. They probably know they're going to they're going to wind up not being able to convince everyone, at least the people that are following this closely. But, you know. I don't know, 80% of Biden's Twitter followers are probably going to say, oh, well, good, we've got an argument against Trump. Let's use it. I'm sure he's telling us the truth, and we'll get through this one. For sure. I I think that's a big part of it. I mean, we're coming off of the labor negotiations back in December. Uh, that uh, that you know captivated the headlines and made that made made rail a big issue for for people that you know wouldn't have been paying attention to it otherwise. And so I think they see a, another opportunity here to uh, to go the next level. And again, there's a there was an impression from the unions, and again, this was really unfair, but there was an impression from the unions that uh, Biden caved in to the uh, railroads during those labor negotiations, and so there might be an aspect of him trying to reassure them that that he's he's still uh, on their side. And so, uh, and so, yeah, I, I think I think politics is definitely playing a big role here, and that's and that's really a shame because, uh, you know, this is this, this should be an opportunity to actually look at what caused this accident, figure out what happened, and and make sure we can prevent it uh, rather than um, uh, proposing things that really aren't related. Do you know if the, is have you looked into it? Is there anything that you think would be uh, helpful here to prevent the next one? I mean, is this just a, a an accident that happened, and you know sometimes accidents happen, and this one's been particularly damaging? Or are there things that could be done to make sure that this does not happen in the future? Yeah, to me so far, it looks like a freak accident, and that's and you know like you said, a particularly bad one for sure. Um, and and what we saw, uh, you know, the, those those terrible images we saw of the huge clouds of smoke and all that. I mean, this this is this is certainly a story of uh, that, that that's very very important. And um, uh, and and I think it I think it helped to raise awareness for uh, for the town. I mean, they they have uh, in East Palestine, Ohio. They have uh, been the recipients of lots of. Uh, private charity and things like that from from all over the country. And so uh, it's certainly a good thing uh, that they're getting help to get back on their feet. Uh, But I think the the biggest thing that the NTSB uh, report will help us to understand and that something that the DOT might look into is something about uh, wayside hotbox detectors, which are these safety devices along the side of the track. Right now, on average, according to the Federal Railroad Administration, this is from 2019, so it might be a little bit out of date, but they said uh, there are currently these detectors about every 25 miles on average uh, on, on, on freight railroads in the U.S. Um, the, the distance between them here, the distance between the first two is 10 miles and the next two was about 20 miles. So they were actually a little bit closer than the national average uh, in, in this particular crash. But because of those gaps between the detectors, it's possible for these overheat, uh, these wheel set overheatings to happen without being uh, known by, by the crew. And so maybe there's something there uh, that, that, that could make a difference. Hmm. All right. Uh, one more before you go, Dominic. Um, you're a baseball fan, as I am. Uh, we have a, we're in this dead period between football and baseball, which is just devastating to my soul. Um, but also devastating to my soul is the fact that we now have a permanent rule to put a guy on second base in extra innings, this magical person who just appears there. This is infuriating to me as a person who actually likes baseball. You know, shorter games, I guess, are important to people who don't like baseball and want less of it. That's not really my concern. Please set the world straight on this. I'm with you 100%, Stu. I think this uh, extra extra runner and extra uh, this bonus runner and in extra innings is just completely un-American uh, for all of baseball. 
for all of for all of the history of baseball, every every runner is accounted for by somebody. They, you know, they did something to earn their way on base, and the defense did something to allow them to get on base. The books balance; it's wonderful. Now we have these magic runners that appear out of nowhere that are no one's responsibility. Um, it's uh, it's it's completely it's completely a disgrace, and it ruins uh, extra innings. I mean, extra innings is the best part of baseball. Those are the most exciting innings. We should want we should want more of that, not less of it. And uh, and yeah, I, I don't understand what Major League Baseball is doing. I mean, even more frustrating too. It's like. It's not only that someone is out there, but it's the person who made the last out of the last inning. The person who ended the last rally just gets put on second base. It makes absolutely no sense. Some of the other stuff I can live with. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to see what the pitch clock is like. I mean, all right, fine. I, you know, I don't, it could be okay. But I just don't understand. Like, the game has been around for a long time. It's great. It's really great. And if you don't like it, you're not, my wife doesn't like it. She's not going to watch it no matter how many pickoff throws you allow. Let the fans enjoy the best times of these games. I just, it's just fascinating to me that, that this is their focus. Uh, give us less baseball, less for our money. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and look, I, I am open to being proven wrong on this. If we see a huge flood of new fans into Major League Baseball, if we see a huge uh, boost in World Series TV ratings coming after this, I'm willing to be corrected. But I don't see that. I don't think that's going to happen. And I, I think you're right that it's just going to turn off people that are used to watching baseball. and It's not really going to attract anybody new. Even if it works and brings an audience, it's still morally wrong, Dominic. And that's the important that's thing. That's right. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dominic Pino, he's the Thomas L. Rhodes Journalism Fellow at National Review. His coverage on this uh, Ohio situation has been better than anybody. you got to make sure you read it over at National Review. I'll tweet out a few of the most recent articles shortly. Dominic, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Stu. It's great to be here. If Joe Biden were aware of his surroundings right now, he would be terrified. Yes, that's right. He's got a big challenger in the Democratic race. Now, of course, he hasn't even announced yet. Jill Biden's going on TV saying, I swear he's going to run if he just remembers to say it one day. But so far, he hasn't said it. Who has said it? The only candidate that I think that's in the race at this point. Marianne Williamson. Yes, she's back. You'll remember her from the 2020 field when there was 864 candidates on the Democratic side. And uh, just like the 2016 Republican field, basically, tons and tons and tons of candidates. Marianne Williamson was, Williamson was one of them. She's like a, what, a new age guru, likes to talk about crystals, essential oils, things like that. And evil. Remember, she wanted to drive evil out, which uh, she did not succeed in. I remember if you looked at Washington, the evil still very present there. Now, on the Republican side, we only have a couple of candidates in. Of course, Donald Trump was actually first in the race. He is uh, there. You also have um, uh, Nikki Haley, who's jumped in. I don't know. I don't know if John Bolton's actually in or not. He said it in like England. He's like, yeah, I'm in. And then I haven't heard another word about it since. So I don't know if he's officially announced yet, but he probably will be. There'll be a bunch more as well on the Republican side. Vivek Ramaswamy's in as well. Uh, Ron DeSantis is not in, but that's really the poll that everyone's talking about right now. Who will win, Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump? And right now there's a new poll that uh, that has come out. And this one shows Donald Trump up significantly. 55 percent of the vote. Uh, Ron DeSantis is at 30. 30- uh, 
excuse me, uh, yeah, 55% of the vote, putting him 30 points ahead of DeSantis, who is at 25%. There's been an interesting pattern in these polls, what what, uh, pollsters consider the high-quality polls, which are kind of the more fun, the old-school way of doing them. Uh, Those polls seem to have Ron DeSantis doing better. Uh, Donald Trump has done better in the Internet polls, not like... I'm tweeting out a poll, but like actual scientific Internet polls, but a little bit less of a reliable methodology there. Uh, but uh, Trump has done better in those polls. I, you know, I'm still of the of the belief that you're not going to learn all that much. We can t- we can learn this from the polls. Trump and DeSantis are the top two. Outside of that, I don't think you know much of anything really at this point. The other candidates that may get into the race are all way, way, way behind. Uh, of course, Mike Pence is in third, which he seemingly usually is, uh, 8% of the vote. Uh, he's the only one that ever, ever even cracks double figures in these things. Nikki Haley is at 5% uh, coming in fourth place right now. Again, I, and I said this from the beginning, this is still Trump's to lose. DeSantis hasn't yet to prove himself on the, if he can uh, have a a national audience. He's proven himself as a great governor. I think he'd be a very good president. Um, but he doesn't, you don't know if he has those diehard people like Trump does. You know, can Trump, is, is there any possibility of Trump dropping below 30% in one of these races? It's hard to believe. So we'll see if that uh, continues. By the way, uh, the DeSantis uh, thing, he did do the Disney bill, kind of a compromise position between, you know, the hardest sta- stance and what uh, Disney wanted, kind of came in between kept the special district in place, but now the government will take control of it instead of Disney. And it's not going to be good for Disney. And they uh, decided they wanted to get their nose into politics and they are going to pay the price for that. Uh, We will see if that dissuades other companies from doing more of their own woke nonsense in the future. Back in a second. By the way, we lead with our mistakes here, and I did make a mistake that last break uh, talking about Marianne Williamson, um, and I said sort of snidely that uh, evil was still in Washington. She did not succeed in her mission, and it it was pointed out to me by the local chapter of the Marianne Williamson fan club that technically the evil's there because she didn't win. If she won, then the evil would be gone from Washington, but she didn't win, so the evil is still there and seemingly growing. Uh, So maybe we should all root for Marianne to win here in uh, 2024. Uh, By the way, just totally unrelated, uh, White House is saying now that federal agencies have 30 days to remove TikTok from their devices. Now, I'm not saying that TikTok is the manifestation of the evil that Marianne Williamson was talking about, but I will tell you, I'm not not saying it either. It's very possible that is exactly what she was talking about. Maybe she wasn't aware. I don't know how crystals or essential oils could solve the TikTok crisis, but it is there. Supposedly, they're going to get rid of it. And they are moving, by the way, too, uh, to uh, advance a plan in uh, Congress uh, about uh, trying to get something close to a TikTok ban. I think what this leads to eventually is forcing a sale of TikTok, which, you know, solves some of the problems with the Chinese government owning it and everything. But what it doesn't solve is how annoying TikTok is. Now, if we were to destroy TikTok, it would just go away. But if we just have it sold, then I'm still going to see lip syncing videos constantly. And that's worse than anything the Chinese Communist Party has ever done. You know, the, the, uh, the, the Cultural Revolution, uh, anything Mao kind of put into place, all better than the lip syncing videos. And I don't think America's ready for that take. 
So get ready for it because I'm running against Marianne Williamson in 2024. Okay, so here's what happened. The president of Mexico, not like just some guy in some region, maybe a little mayor of a small town. No, the president of the entire country uh, took to Twitter uh, the other day because that's apparently what people do when they have jobs in government. They just tweet. We hire them to tweet. Uh, And so he decided to post a picture on his social media. And (laughs) he it's a picture of of what he claims to be an elf. Now, it sounds it's not Buddy the Elf. No, it's an Alux. An Alux is a Mexican, or I guess a Mayan, Mayan folklore. It's, a, it's an elf, a, uh, a Mexican elf. There it is in the tree. Hey, Mexican elf. If you kind of look closely, you can kind of see like hairs and a couple of weird eyes peeking back at you. It's a little scary, right? Well, um, he says it was taken three days ago by an engineer. It appears to be an Alux. And he said, everything is mystical. And so I think if Marianne Williamson did win, I think we'd have a good conversation here. But I will say... Uh, he says he, it looks like he was serious. He may also be on drugs and serious. But I will say it is just yet another example of how the Mexican president has a much closer connection to reality than our president. Uh, which is a tad depressing when you think about it.